One of the blessed quirks that I inherited from my father, and we all have blessed quirks that we inherited from our parents, is an attention to detail. Now, I know that when we inherit things from our parents, oftentimes they are of a lesser quality in us than they were in them. And that's certainly the case. My father has a problem. And that is that when he tells a story, he has to give every detail. And I mean every detail. Annoyingly detailed. I was wearing blue shoes. And they were tight. No, they were slip-ons. They were, and then I turned left. No, it was a right. And the, the stories go on and on and on because of the detail that is given as he goes along the way. And I've been told I have a tendency to do the same thing from time to time. But the reason I bring that to your attention tonight as we begin is because for that reason, I really like Dr. Luke, the author of the gospel that we're studying. Because Luke, above all the other New Testament writers, was a man who is given to incredible detail. He lays things out for us with such acuteness and such accuracy, and I'm glad for that because he was a doctor, and certainly I want my doctors to be those that pay attention to detail. And it pleased the Lord to choose a doctor to lay down this gospel that we might have an accurate and detailed account of the Christ that we believe. Well, as we come to Luke chapter 2 now, we have the most detailed account of the first 30 years of Jesus' life that any of the gospel writers, in fact, any of the Bible, gives to us. And it's amazing that all of 30 years of Jesus' life can be summed up into just one single chapter, Luke chapter 2. And that's all we've got. And the Bible is very silent concerning those first 30 years. We have the details concerning his birth and his conception and his inception into the world. And then we have one small sketch of something that happened in his childhood at the age of 12, and then that's it. We don't know anything else until his public ministry starts. But it's Dr. Luke that gives to us the details of what took place during that time. And had it not been for Luke's account, we would be very much in the dark about a whole lot more of that segment of Jesus' life. And so as we get into chapter 2, now we see what took place. And so if I could draw your attention to chapter 2, the first verse... Luke writes, and it says that it came to pass in those days. Now, those days, of course, would be the days wherein Mary had now conceived miraculously and she was carrying the Messiah within her womb. It says that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was the governor of Syria. There's some of the detail that Luke gives to us. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. So she's far along into the pregnancy at this point. And it was so that while they were there, that the days were accomplished, that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. We're told first off that it was in the days of Augustus Caesar that a tax was issued forth that caused Joseph and Mary to have to travel from Nazareth now to Bethlehem. The man who's labeled here as Augustus Caesar was born with the name Gaius Octavius. And he inherited the title or the position of Caesar from his uncle, who had been one of the first emperors of Rome. And as this man now, Gaius Octavius, comes into power, the government of Rome goes from a plurality of generals that were leading that state to now one singular ruler for the first time. And thus, the Roman Empire is being brought into the apex of its power. And if you know anything about history, you know that the Roman Empire was a very powerful empire. And so all of this is taking place while Rome is coming into that place of apex power. Now, in B.C. 27, Gaius Octavius, this man who would be called Augustus, 
was given a title by the Roman Senate. And at first they wanted to call him a king, but that wasn't good enough for Gaius. He said, it's too common. And so then they said, well, how about a dictator? And he said, well, that's not sufficient. It doesn't have enough of a ring to it. It's too common again. So they said, well, how about Augustus, which means of the gods? And he said, I like that. And so this man adopted the name Augustus from the Roman Senate, Caesar from his uncle, and thus we have Augustus Caesar. And the point of all of that is to be that this man is at this point the most powerful man in the whole world. He has the authority to issue a law that the whole world is going to come under taxation and registration. And thus they will be counted in a census, each man in the city of his nativity or his heritage. And at the same time, he'll also pay a tax to strengthen the hand of this Roman Empire. And so he exercises his power by causing this taxation. Now, what that meant for Mary and Joseph is that they're going to have to now make a 70 or 80 mile journey, 70 miles if they take the direct route, 80 miles if they go around Samaria, which was common for people to travel in those days to not go through Samaria. And they'll have to do it while she is eight to nine months pregnant. It's a journey that would take normally about three days, but I'm sure that with them it took much longer. And the reason I know that is because I've had five kids. And if you travel anywhere with a woman who is great with child, it takes a long time. I mean, sometimes people feel sorry for Mary during this trip. Oh, what was it like for her to have to ride on a donkey for 70 miles? I say, what about Joseph? Joey, I have to pee again. Oh, we just went like four minutes ago. You know, sorry, I have to, it's, I have to do it. You know, and you know what it's like, moms, if you've been down that road and you know what it's like, dads, if you've been down that road with the wives. And so needless to say, it was an arduous journey, but it was a journey that they had to make because they couldn't appeal. They couldn't wait. They couldn't stay. They had to go to Bethlehem for the fulfilling of this taxation. Then we're told that when they arrived there, that there was no room for them in the inn. Now, we might picture when we read that a holiday inn or, you know, a hotel or a motel of sorts. They didn't have it in those days. It would be more like a bed and breakfast. And all of the places where people would go and stay would be booked up. And while Mary was in the bathroom, the rooms were being taken. And thus, once they arrived there, the only place for them to lodge is in a bay that would be dedicated to an animal, a cow or a donkey or a horse, out in a stable in a barn. Now, that's an amazing thing to me. I mean, we've sanctified that entire picture by our Christmas cards and the Christmas story, and we've made the manger scene and the the stable, this beautiful place, you know, with gold flowing clean hay and animals that are freshly groomed and everything is well lit. It wouldn't be like that at all. Have you been to the Dutchess County Fair? And you go through, and I mean, those stalls are clean meticulously because those animals are competing. But yet, what's it like? Can you imagine setting up shop in one of those stalls where the cattle are laying? That's what it was like for Mary and Joseph to have to go into this place after this long journey. She's pregnant, and they go into this place now, and she begins to feel these labor pains, and she has to bring forth the Messiah in a barn, and then she has to lay him in a feeding trough. That's what a manger is because there's no other place to set him. It was the safest place where he would be secure is to just place him inside a feeding trough and the only protection he would have are the swaddling clothes that he would be wrapped in there. At least they had uh, clean linens. Now from man's perspective, we look at this little scene that happens at the beginning of Jesus' life. We see a pompous king flexing his muscles, an inconvenient, arduous journey made by the parents the rooms being booked so that there's no place for them to stay. And now in that inconvenient situation, Mary goes into labor and she's forced to bring forth her child in this scene. And it almost seems as you look at it, at least from the perspective of Joseph and Mary, that everything is working against them. That God was so involved in the conception, but where is God now that they want to bring forth the child to birth? Now, if you look at that same scene from heaven's perspective, You see it from a totally different light. 750 years before this time, a prophet by the name of Micah came on the scene and he prophesied this. It's Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He said, by the Spirit of God, 
But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, even from everlasting. That God spoke 750 years before this time that when Messiah comes, that he would be born in Bethlehem. But now the day comes that Messiah is coming into the world and God's got a problem. Because Joseph and Mary don't live in Nazareth. Though they're from there, for some, or I'm sorry, they don't live in Bethlehem. They live in Nazareth. And though they're from Bethlehem ancestrally, they don't live there presently. So how is God going to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem now to fulfill the word that he spoke 750 years ago that God would maintain a perfect track record? Well, God just takes this pompous, arrogant king who thinks that he's in charge of the whole world, and God just pulls a few strings in his mind and causes him to think, you know what, I'm going to tax the whole world and cause everybody to have to go to the place where they were born. And thus... The king's heart is turned, a decree is issued forth, and Mary and Joseph are brought perfectly to the place where God said that the Messiah would be. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1 says this. It says that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Just like the rivers of water, he turns it whithersoever he lists. That God brings forth and causes the nations to bow before his will. He is sovereign, even over the highest sovereign, lowercase s, that can exist in the realms of men. There are a lot of people in our land today, especially those that are paying attention, that are angry at the things that are going on in the world. I mean, if you're paying attention and you're watching what's happening to our country and to our freedom, and you're seeing our founding documents, the Constitution being eroded away, and you're watching our domestic policy destroyed as our borders are all but opened up, and you're watching our foreign policy disintegrate as we're allowing the world to just do whatever they want, regardless of what it will cost us in our future. And to consider the things that are taking place in our economic policy and all of what's going on in the world. And now, with net neutrality, the newest thing, our internet freedom. And there's a lot of people that are angry about the things that are taking place. And the anger that's being produced by those things, I believe, is in great measure misdirected. Because the anger is aimed usually at the politicians that are making these laws or allowing these things to happen. But the Bible teaches us that God is sovereign and that he's the one that moves things in the realms of men to take place, to stand or fall. Ultimately, freedom comes from God. It isn't something that is a human right. It is something that God gives. It can only come from God. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Freedom comes from God. And thus freedom is maintained as a people are submitted to God. And therefore, the things that we're watching take place in our land today is not the fault of politicians, but rather it's the hand of God. And here's why. Because we as a people have not been good stewards of the freedoms and liberties that God's given us. We as a people, and I include myself and all of us in that, have used and taken for granted the freedoms that God has given us to consume it upon ourselves and really to throw it back in the face of God. We've denied his name. And thus God is causing us to lose those liberties. So what's the answer? Our anger shouldn't be directed at politicians. Our anger should be directed at ourselves, really. Because we're the ones that have allowed this to take place. We've been apathetic. We've been poor stewards of it. And here's the good news. That if we would turn back to God, and it starts with us in this room. God said through the prophet, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will come and I will heal their land. And if it would start with us and we would say, God, I have misuse the liberties that you've given. And God, help me to be a voice for you in our nation. God could turn things around on a dime. It could happen tomorrow, just like that. And thus we see God moving, steering the hand of a king to accomplish his will within the world. He does it with nations. He also does it in our lives. Every circumstance and situation that you and I face, on the other side of the boss that's making our life miserable, on the other side of the husband who is to us a source of strength, uh, torment or a thorn in our flesh, 
On the other side of all of that, God is pulling the strings because he's working his purposes within our lives. And the good news is, the Bible says that he's working all of those purposes for the good. So no matter how bad it might seem, God is sovereign over it. And thus we see it here uh, with them. I love the fact that Jesus was born in a barn and laid in a manger. To me, that is such an incredible thing that God himself, as he would choose a birthplace for himself in the world, wouldn't choose even a clean room in an inn or a bed and breakfast. But he would say, I'll go even lower than that. I'll be born in a barn and I'll allow myself to be placed in a manger. What an incredible uh, thing that God would do for us. Well, anyways, we move on. And now uh, after the um, birth of Jesus, it tells us in verse 8 that there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. I think I would be too if I was out in the field, and all of a sudden, just like every other night, I'm thinking it's just going to be another shift, punch the clock. And all of a sudden, the heavens are opened, and the glory of God begins to resound, and I begin to see angels and hear their voices. I think I would be afraid too. What in the world? And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you to confirm the word that you're hearing. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now that might not seem very miraculous or seem like much of a sign, But when's the last time you saw a baby just birthed in a barn and then laid in a manger? I think if that came to pass, I might believe. It was good enough of a sign for them. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible. It's plastered on Christmas cards and placards and banners and in songs. Every Christmas we hear this verse thundered forth. And it is a declaration of praise. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill towards men. But I believe that it is also a pattern. Not just a praise, but a pattern. And that is this, that when glory is given to God in the highest, then on earth there is peace and goodwill towards men. Relationships between men and women on earth always stand or fall based upon the strength of the relationship between man and God between heaven and earth. And when things are correct on the vertical axis, things always are peaceful on the horizontal axis. And here the angels are declaring that truth even as they announce and praise for the birth of the Savior. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill towards men. That's always God's will is that there be peace and that there be goodness towards us. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known unto us. And they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning the child. And so they take the sign that they were given, they couple it with what they're now seeing with their eyes, and it causes in them an excitement. They come to life and they begin to declare forth and speak out about the sign that was given and the son that was born. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in our heart. And what verse 19 tells us uh, there is that this sign and this visitation of the shepherds by the angels was not just for their sake, but it was also for Mary's sake. I mean, you can imagine this poor woman. She's just made this incredible journey, and now she's laying there in a pile of hay in a pool of afterbirth. And she's wondering, where are you, God, in all of this? Is this, I mean, all now but forgotten the promise that was made and who it is that she just gave birth to. But God sends these shepherds with an encouraging word and, you know, the confirmation of a sign. And it says that Mary pondered these things. She kept them in her heart. For her, it was a source of great encouragement. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Now, historically, throughout the Middle Eastern culture, shepherds were always esteemed as those that held one of the lowest occupations among men. 
we see that clear back into the book of Genesis and then into Exodus. We know that Abraham was a keeper of sheep, and then so were his sons and their descendants. And when Joseph landed in Egypt and then called his father Jacob to bring their family and their household down, it says that he separated them into the land of Goshen, which was the good grazing lands. And he separated them from the rest of the Egyptians. And the reason was that he gave was because that shepherds were despised by the Egyptians. And that's common throughout the Middle East. It's kind of always been the way shepherds have been looked upon. They were more or less second-class farmers. They brought forth a product, but they didn't really have to do all that much work. There was much more honor and esteem in those that would plow a field and then plant a crop and then harvest it and bring it to market. A shepherd would simply protect and feed, and there really wasn't much to it. And so shepherds had the reputation of being lazy, slow bellies, you know, and the rest. And so they were despised, they were disliked. The other thing that we notice about shepherds as we go through the Bible is that God seems to really like them. Abel, the first son of Adam and Eve, he was a shepherd. And God accepted his sacrifice wherein Cain's, the fruit of the ground, was despised and rejected. Abraham, again, and his descendants, they became known as the Haburai or the Hebrews. They were the nomadic shepherd people. They were chosen by God. Moses, a shepherd, chosen by God. David called from following after the sheep, a shepherd called to follow, uh, to become the king, the shepherd of God's people. God constantly elevating shepherds all the way throughout. And now it's shepherds that God chooses to be the very first ones that hear the good news about the coming forth of his son into the world. He says, I bring you good news. And unto you shall be this son born, this Christ who is the Savior of the world. The first people that God gives his message of salvation to are these shepherds that are out in the field by night. Now, why does God like shepherds so much? I think the first reason is because he identifies with them. Throughout the Bible, God likens himself unto a shepherd. In fact, one of the names that's ascribed to God in the Old Testament is Jehovah Ra or the Lord is my shepherd, from Psalm 23. God calls himself, his name is, I am God, your shepherd. Jesus would say later on, he would say, I am the good shepherd that lays down my life for the sheep. Another psalmist would write and say that you are our God and we are the people of your pasture, giving God the place of a shepherd and man the place of his sheep. And thus God loves the shepherd because God sees himself as a shepherd and he sees us as his sheep, his beloved sheep. The other reason I believe that God chose to reveal himself to shepherds first is because God always chooses to reveal himself to those that are lowly and despised of men. It's one of the things I love about God is that he doesn't seek the rich and the famous, the popular and the wise, but he goes after the lowly, the humble, those that are despised, the offscoring of society, that those are the ones that God is attracted to. We'll see that true throughout the whole life of Jesus. We'll see that when he walks into a room, he always looks for the person who's the most downcast, the person who needs a healing, who has a withered hand, or the person who's alone and despised and rejected. In a group of people, he'll find the sinner and he'll encourage and lift up that one. God's always attracted to the down and out. He's not looking for those that have it all together. Jesus would say, they that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. And he says, I am not come to call the righteous, but I'm come to call sinners to repentance. And the shepherd heart of God is that he wants to restore, he wants to forgive, and he wants to build up. And so God always looks for those that are lowly, those that are down, and those that are out. And he comes to the shepherds, the despised among men, and they are the very first ones to hear this good news about the Savior that will be born. And thus, it says that they noised abroad uh, the the message that was uh, given to them. And so uh, we have that that passage about God coming to the shepherd. The next segment here, um, we have a passage of scripture that highlights two ceremonial rites that were required by Jewish law that Jesus went through. It says in verse 21, it says that when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. 
the name would always be given on the day of circumcision, which would always be the eighth day. That was just law. Even if it was the Sabbath day when no work could be done, the child would be circumcised on the Sabbath. And then the second, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, that would be 40 days after the birth, Mary would be considered unclean. But then she would be cleansed as she would bring an offering. It says that they brought him, that is Jesus, to Jerusalem, which would be about a five-mile journey from Bethlehem, to present him to the Lord or to dedicate him uh, to the Lord or to redeem him, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and then to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves uh, and two young pigeons." And so the first rite that Jesus goes through is this rite of circumcision that is there. And I hope that all of us are well enough informed in the practices of medical things and Jewish history that I don't have to explain to you exactly what circumcision is. But I will go as far as to say is that what it was, from God's perspective, was a cutting away of the flesh. And what it was, it was a symbolic type of the kind of relationship that man would have with God. The Bible says that God is spirit and that they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And in order for us to worship God in spirit, it means that we must cut away the flesh or the outward part of what we are. And so the cutting away of the flesh, which is fallen in sin so that we can relate to God in the spirit. And thus the circumcision covenant that was given to Abraham and then sanctioned in the law by Moses was a picture of the relationship that we have with God, not by the flesh or the works of the flesh, but cutting it off that we might relate to God in the spirit. Now, circumcision became something altogether different in the Jewish mind. It became synonymous with keeping of the law. Because it was the sign of the covenant, and because it was required by the law, it became the foundation of a law-abiding life. If you were going to be a law-abiding Jew, the very first law that you would keep was when you were eight days old, that you would be circumcised, that you would adhere to this thing that God said. And thus what happened is that circumcision never was fully realized for what God intended it to be, and it was made into something that he didn't intend it to be. It was not intended to just be a ritual that they would go through without mind to what it meant. That's what it became. And thus, circumcision became synonymous with law-keeping. If you were of the circumcision, it meant that you were a keeper of the law. Now, Jesus was circumcised. And Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, but I came to fulfill the law. And thus we see even Jesus being circumcised here. But here's the interesting thing. For you and I that are Christians that have a relationship with God, it is no longer required that we be circumcised. In fact, the apostle Paul will go so far as to discourage us from being circumcised. He would say to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, You could, you don't have to wait for me. I didn't get a post-it. And yes. Galatians 5, verse 2. He would say, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, then Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do or to keep the whole law, and Christ is become of no effect unto you, whosoever you are who are justified by the law, for you are fallen from grace. Now, what that doesn't mean is that if you've been circumcised that you can't go to heaven. That's not what that means. But here's what it does mean. That if you're trusting in circumcision or in the law, which is what circumcision become, came to represent, then Christ is of no effect for you. And here's why. Because there are two types of salvation. Or to say it another way, there are two ways that you can get to heaven. It's tax time, isn't it? And so as we do our taxes and we file all those different things, there are different options that we have for filing for, for our return or for reporting what we've earned. There's two ways. Number one is the itemized deduction, 
wherein you can deduct all of your charitable giving and your mortgage interests and all these things from your income and report it that way. It's itemized. You're going through and you're listing out every little dollar you've spent that you shouldn't be taxed for, itemizing each one. Or on the other side, there's the standard deduction. And for simplicity's sake, and for those that don't have that many deductions, they just give you like a number that you can deduct standard, $10,000. And so wise people do this. They itemize all of their deductions in their head or on paper, and then they look at the standard, and whichever one is more, that's the one they go with. Because, hey, I have to pay less taxes the more I can deduct. Well, there's two types of salvation. There's itemized salvation, and then there's standard salvation. Here's what itemized salvation looks like. You go through and you make a list of all the good and all of the evil that you've done. And you see at the bottom line, at the end of all of those itemized lists of your behaviors, if you can measure up to the perfection of Christ and get into heaven based upon your good deeds, being circumcised, being baptized, keeping the law, doing things, giving money, walking old ladies across the road, donating time. You itemize everything that you've done and see if it's enough to pay the price for your sin. On the other side, there's a standard salvation. And that's the salvation that Jesus purchased on our behalf. And here's how he did it. He kept every jot and tittle of the law perfectly. Never failed in one point. And at the same time, he met all of the qualifications for someone to be forgiven of all their sins and to stand before God in a position of righteousness. And then Jesus hung on a cross and died and he made that salvation available to whosoever would take it. That's called the standard salvation. Now you get to choose which one you want. Do you want to try to get to heaven based upon your performance and your good works, itemizing all of your deeds? Or do you want to just accept what Jesus did and accept the salvation that he offers to you? You say, well, what does that have to do with circumcision? That's why Jesus was circumcised. See, he fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law on our behalf so that now we're set free from that law and our salvation is based on grace through faith and we are placed in Christ and everything that he did and accomplished is now laid to our account and thus we are righteous because of what he did and not because of what we do. Paul would explain it to the Colossians this way. It's in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. He says, and you are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised. Do you see that? In him you are circumcised. With the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, listen, by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, his circumcision is laid to your account and my account when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. We are buried with him in baptism, wherein also we're risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. And you then, here's the result, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened or made alive together with him, having forgiven you all of your trespasses. So why does Luke include the circumcision of Christ in the narrative of his birth? Here's why. Because this is the foundation of Jesus qualifying as the redeemer of mankind. He had to fulfill all the law. And thus, though he was sinlessly perfect and needed not to have his flesh cut away, he did it for us because it would be the foundation of our identifying with him. And so the circumcision of Christ. Then there's the dedication or the redemption. Under the law that God gave through Moses, He required that every firstborn male be given to him. It was God's plan A for his service. Every firstborn would be his. Now, later on, he called the tribe of the Levites, and he had a whole tribe that was dedicated to his service. But it didn't undo the law that every male had to be dedicated or given to God. And so here's what God did to make provision for that. That you could redeem your firstborn by bringing a lamb. And so when the firstborn would come, the parents would bring a lamb to the temple and they would offer it to God and that would be the redemption of the firstborn. They would then get to keep him or to get him back. If they didn't have a lamb, they could pay five shekels uh, into the temple uh, thing there. And if they were poor, then the Bible made provision for them to just bring two turtle doves or two doves. 
two pigeons or two doves. If they were poor they, and couldn't afford a lamb, then God made a way that they could do it uh, on a cost-effective type of basis. And so that's what's taking place now as Jesus is being brought to the temple and he's being redeemed as the firstborn. Now, the interesting thing about this, that if you look there at the end of the passage there in verse 24, it tells us that what they offered was a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. And so what we learn from this is that Mary and Joseph, though they were devoted to God, and though they were chosen by God to bring up the Christ, they were not well-to-do. They didn't have a lot of money. What that means is that Jesus, the Messiah and Savior of the world, grew up in a household and in a family where he would have to share a room with other people, where he'd have to eat rice and beans towards the end of the week or towards the end of the pay period, waiting for you know, the fresh supply of money to come in so that they could uh, eat, eat you know, steak <laughs> then again at the beginning of the week or the month. It means that he would have to shop at Kmart and thrift stores for his school clothes growing up. It would mean that the family donkey was a crossbreed and probably had one leg that was shorter than all the others, you know. And they would hobble along as they went from place to place. It would mean that he wouldn't have access to the resources and opportunities that other people would have. That he wouldn't be able to play on the travel league. That he would have to play recreation sports if he could play any sports at all. And the amazing thing is that God allowed his son, in fact, God chose for himself that he would come into the world and that he'd be brought up in a family that was a low-income type of family. You say, well, why would God do that? Well, first of all, the reason that God sent his son into the world was to carry a gospel that would be to the lowly and poor. Now, how is God going to give a gospel to the lowly and poor when he comes into the world with blue blood, eating from a silver spoon and growing up in riches? And so God chose to come into a family that would know what it's like to struggle through life and eke out of living. That was the kind of young life that the father ordained for his son. And here's the second reason why. Because of what he would be in the future, he needed to have that experience in order to be effective in what he was called to do in relating to people later on. How does that apply to you and me? Because I believe that it does. I personally can think of 10 at least, right off the bat, without even thinking, 10 things about my upbringing that I detest and despise. Things about where I was brought up, who I was brought up by, the type of conditions that we were raised in, things that were done in our household. I mean, all kinds of things that I hate about my childhood. But yet at the same time, if I think just a little bit deeper and I look at them through the lens of God's plan for my life, I wouldn't trade even one of those experiences. Because all of those things served to make me who I am today. And those very things that I detest and despise have saved me on numerous occasions from things that would have destroyed me and they've shaped me to make me who I never could have become had those things not been true in our lives, in my life. I hear a lot of people that complain about their past. Well, because of the way I was brought up. And listen, I'm not belittling some of the awful things that can happen to people when they're children or when they're growing up in a certain home. But I think ultimately, God knows the plan that he has for every one of us. And he knows what he's shaping us and making us to be for our future. And he knows how to use those experiences to make us the right representation of him that he calls us to be later in life. And we see him doing that even with himself as he came into the world, choosing to be in a family where he would know what it's like to relate to the poor and to those that do not have Interesting thing. It also teaches us that you don't have to come from money to be great in the eyes of God because the greatest man that ever was came from a background that was at best uh, shady. This this fills me with joy. I love this passage because it, it, it's how God chose to live his earthly life. I mean, think about it. For 4,000 years, God was observing the way people were brought up and the lifestyles that they lived. And now when he's going to come into the world himself, he chooses this kind of upbringing the thing that we would never choose for ourselves, God takes the lowest place and he says, that's the way I want to grow up. That's the way I want to be. And the reason is because that's who God is. He's a humble God. He's a lowly God. And it's almost like as if he saw this world and the best that it could give as hors d'oeuvres when he knew that the feast was coming. And he wouldn't dare fill up on hors d'oeuvres knowing what was in the feast to come. And I think there's something in that for us to consider is that the best this world can give, 
doesn't hold a candle to the glory that will be revealed when we see him in his kingdom. And God forbid that we should be filled up with the delicacies of this world that we're not able to fully enjoy the feast that's yet to come. Jesus, our example of living a life, an effective life, a joyful life, a fruitful life, even though he came up in things that we would technically uh, or normally despise. So Jesus, uh, dedicated to the Lord, brought up by um, impoverished parents. And it says that, behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout. Just would be the description of his relationship with men, and devout would be a description of his relationship with God. And it says that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, so at his dedication, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And then there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, and she was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. That is, that she was 84 years old, she was married for seven years, and then her husband died and she lived out the rest of those years as a widow. And what she did with her time then is that she departed not from the temple, but she served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she, coming in that instant, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spoke of him, that is Jesus, to all them that looked for redemption uh, in Jerusalem. And so we have now the adoration and the prophecy of Simeon and then of Anna. We're told that Simeon was a just and devout man, It's implied that he's old, not though it's said his age, but it tells us that he's at the stage of life where he's thinking about death. And it tells us that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, I know that sounds kind of like a technical phrase or like a generic thing, but that actually is something. The consolation of Israel spoke of the passage of of Scripture that spans from Isaiah chapter 40 through the end of Isaiah, Isaiah 66. And it's the passage of Scripture that is purely messianic, that is speaking forth or forward to the first coming of Jesus Christ. It begins with the words, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. And then, you know, it kind of moves on from there. And it became known as the consolation or the comfort of Israel. And we're told that this Simeon was a man who was intrigued and moved by that passage, and he was ready and waiting for that comfort to come, the day that the Messiah would be brought into the world. And we're told that he was promised by God in the spirit that he wouldn't die until he saw that promise come. And here now, Mary and Joseph bring Jesus into the temple at the dedication of Jesus when he would be redeemed. And when Simeon saw Jesus, the spirit of God came upon him and he knew supernaturally that that young child, that 40-day-old baby that was being carried by Mary and Joseph, that that was God's savior. And so he comes forth with this declaration He says, Lord, I have now seen thy salvation. Now, in the Greek, that's not that impressive. It's like the word soterion or something, speaking of the Savior. But in the Hebrew, and if he said it in Hebrew, it would sound like this. I have now seen Yahoshua, your salvation. Yahoshua is the Hebrew form of Jesus that we would say in the New Testament, in the Greek, translated into the English. And thus what Mary and Joseph would hear is, I have now seen Yahushua. I have now seen your Jesus that you have brought. Now imagine, put yourself in the shoes of Mary and Joseph for just a minute. They don't know this man from Adam. And no one knows who they are either. They're not from that region. 
And now here comes a man walking right up, taking the child out of his arms, and then calling him by name, not even knowing who he is, and yet equating him as being the Savior of Israel. Knowing what Gabriel told Mary Jesus would be without being told at all what it is. And it says that Joseph and Mary marveled when they heard the saying of Simeon. Now this is another confirmation for Mary and Joseph of that, yes, this is legitimate, what God is doing within them in, in, in uh, their life. And so he then gives this prophecy to Mary concerning Jesus. He says, first of all, that this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. You know that that's always what happens when a person comes into a relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. It's always in that order. There's a fall and a rising again. We come to a knowledge of Jesus by, first of all, recognizing that we are fallen before a holy God, that we are sinful and separated from him, that our sins have disqualified us from heaven and from forgiveness, and that there's nothing that we can do to ever save ourselves And when a person comes under that kind of conviction, realizing that they are not right with God, that's a fall within their life. And it's designed to be a fall. Because a person cannot truly come to Christ until they, first of all, truly recognize that they need a Christ or a Savior. And that's the work of conviction. And thus, we come into a point of our lives where we realize, I'm not what I'm supposed to be. I'm not who I'm supposed to be. And in that fall, then, we're met by the grace of God and we realize that there's a Savior, someone who took our place and died in our place, and in that, we rise again. And so Simeon, great insight to be able to say of Jesus that he is set for the fall and then the rising again of many in Israel, those that would come under conviction and realize they're dead and yet receive grace at the hand of this Christ and be saved because of him. And he's, a sign will be spoken against him, speaking of the cross and the sign of the cross that we're all familiar with. And that that same sign would be a sword that would pierce through the heart of Mary as well, speaking of the fact that she would need to be redeemed just the same as everyone else. And not only that, but she would stand and she would watch her firstborn son hang upon a cross and die. And so the sword would be for her both spiritual and that she would be born again but it would also be literal and that she would see Jesus die. And then he speaks of that same sign of the cross as being that which reveals what's in the heart, that the hearts of many would be revealed. And I'm amazed at the power of the cross to do that. See, you and I, we could fool each other into thinking that we're better than we really are. But no one can fool God into thinking that they're better than they really are. Because the Bible says that all things are naked and exposed before him with whom we deal. He sees everything that we are, every thought, every motive, every intention. He sees every act that's done before it's even done. He sees everything. And the cross of Christ is what reveals to man that God sees all of that. And the fact that he had to send his son to die on a cross because no one was good enough to save themselves encourages us to lay our hearts open before a holy God and to confess that we're not what other people see us to be. And that when we do that, and we come to him in vulnerability, he receives us and he forgives us and he sets us free. Only the cross in someone's life can expose their sin to bring them to a place of salvation. This is incredible insight and a great level of understanding for a man who knows none of the New Testament like we do but it was revealed to him by the Spirit of God. And then this woman, Anna, who speaks of Jesus uh, outwardly. And then in verse 39, it says that when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. Now, Luke here leaves out a couple of things that Matthew put in. One of those uh, things would be First of all, the time um, that they moved into Egypt. You remember that Herod was jealous because of the Magi. Uh, Luke doesn't mention the the wise men. Um, And and so the wise men and the flight to Egypt. And Luke kind of leaves that out. But we get those details from Matthew. Matthew doesn't tell us most of the rest of what Luke does. He does tell us those things, but not uh, these. And so uh, after they went to Egypt, now they go back up into Nazareth. And it's amazing to me that Nazareth, and I pointed this out last week, was one of the worst places that you could raise a family in Israel. It was laden with prostitution, with crime. It was just the ghetto of Israel, to where later on Nathaniel would say, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? There was nothing good that could come out of Nazareth. 
Oh, except for one thing. Jesus. It tells me that Jesus grows there. Look at verse 40. It says that the child grew and he waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom. And it says that the grace of God was upon him. You might be in a place tonight in your life where you think that there's nothing good that could come out of your life where you are right now. It could be a place that you live. It could be a family situation. It could be an employment situation. It could be a situation at school and people that you're around. And you could think that there is absolutely nothing good that could come out of this situation and circumstance that I'm in in my life. But isn't it interesting that Jesus was brought up in a bad situation, and yet he was able to grow there, to grow in strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and and experience the grace of God uh, upon his life. He can cause you and I to grow in whatever circumstance that we're in. And he exemplifies that through the fact that he was able to grow in the circumstances that he was in. And he is, um, you know, he's just doing incredible things in our lives through the experiences that we face. Well, then we come to the final uh, little sketch here in chapter 2 of Jesus' life before his ministry, and it's a point in time when he was 12 years old. It says in verse 41, it says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. Now, the custom of the feast is that everyone would go to Jerusalem and that they would spend a week there. A full week, the first of uh, the first fruits and the Passover would be celebrated there, and then they would go home. And so it says that when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. Now, I spent a lot of time this week thinking about this, because the Bible tells us that Jesus was absolutely sinless, that he never sinned at all. And I put myself in this scenario for a moment, and I thought, well, what if one of my children deliberately stayed behind when the rest of the family left a vacation? What would I do when I saw that child, and what would the lecture sound like that they would receive? I mean, certainly, it would look like sin to me if one of my children did that. So I thought, well, then, maybe this was Joseph and Mary's fault. Maybe they got confused and told Jesus that we'll be here when there, and they never showed up, and they kind of took off thinking he was there. You could think through it on your own. All I know is that Jesus is sinless in this, and yet, man, did he really ruin his parents' day. (laughs) It says, but they supposing him to have been in the company. So the mom thought he was with the dad. The dad thought he was with the mom. They were both wrong. They went a day's journey. And they sought him among their kinsfolk, their family and acquaintances. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days, they found him in the temple. So that means they spent one day leaving, one day returning, and then a whole day looking around Jerusalem for him and not finding him. Can you imagine the terror that you feel as a parent if you go through that experience? I remember one time when my son Rocky was about two years old, just able to walk. I was in the Danbury Fair Mall with my wife, and my father was in town. And my wife said, you've got Rocky, right? And I said, yeah, I've got him, no problem. And there he was, he was walking right with us. But my wife knows what happens when me and my dad start talking. And so we walked, me and my father, with Rocky, I thought, for about, I don't know, three or four minutes. And all of a sudden it dawned on me that I was supposed to have Rocky, and he was nowhere to be found. And so I turned around and I looked, and about 50 feet behind us, I saw Rocky standing by himself in the middle of the mall, and I saw my wife right up coming right up behind him. And I thought, I am so dead. You know? <laughs> because I, but, but if you're a parent and you've ever experienced a moment like that where you don't know what where your kids are. Another time it was, I've got to share this, April Fool's Day. And Georgia sent me to the grocery store. And I, again, I took Rocky. It was about the same time. He was about the same age. And when we returned home, I, I, he was in the car seat. And I left him in the car seat. And I opened up the doors. And I said, I'll be right back. And I went in the house. And I pretended like you know everything was normal. And I dropped the groceries on the counter. And she looked at me. And she said, where's Rocky? And I gave her this look like, oh, my God. And I, and I, and I did it. It worked, you know? And, I, and she bought it, you know? And so she ran, ran out. And I, and, and, and then obviously realized it was a joke. 
she punched me in the face. Only time, <laughs> only time <laughs> in our whole marriage. <laughs> I thought this is hilarious, you know, and <laughs> she didn't think so. But all of that to say, <laughs> can you imagine the horror? For three days now, or for two days, they would feel the full weight of thinking that they lost God. It says that it came to pass after three days that they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou dealt with us this way? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that you sought me? Now, interesting, I believe that this is kind of like a dig, you know, a a, a respectful dig, as if to say, you could have found me a full day ago if you'd just come and looked in the right spot. I mean, you've been looking all around Jerusalem, but you looked in the wrong place. He says, wist ye not, or knew ye not, that I must be about my father's business? Now, this statement, which is, by the way, the first words that Jesus utters in the Bible, the first recorded words of Jesus, they are pregnant with truth. First of all, he said, how is it that you sought me? I think that there are many people that look for Jesus and they don't find them because they look in the complete wrong places. Well, he's not at my job and he's not in the streets and he's not in the bars and he's not in the red light district and he's not amongst the families and he's not in there. Where is he? Listen, he's in the temple. That's where Jesus is. People look for him, but they just don't want him to be in church. They want God. They even like Jesus, but they just don't want to find him where he is. They looked in the wrong place, and that's why Mary and Joseph didn't find him faster. I think that's true for a lot of people. The second thing that Jesus says to them there is he says that I must be about my father's business. Now, Mary said, your father and I have been looking for you sorrowing. Jesus corrects her. He says, he's not my father. He said, I must be about my father's business, letting her know. Interesting, this would set the stage for Jesus' whole life. That's what he would do his whole life, is he would be about the father's business only. And they understood not the saying which he spoke unto them. And he went down with them, and he came to Nazareth, and was subject unto them, or in submission to them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God Uh, and with men. And so um, this last segment that's given to us of Jesus' life, it it reveals to us just a couple of things about Jesus that I'll point out to you as we uh, prepare to close. Um, First of all, it tells us very clearly or shows to us very clearly that at this point in Jesus' life, he fully knew who he was. People ask sometimes, did Jesus know from the time that he was a child that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God? Or is that something that he kind of came into a revelation of later on in his life? Well, this passage reveals very clearly that he knew exactly who he was, even at the age of 12. I must be about my father's business, uh, he says. The second thing that we learn from this passage about Jesus at this point in his life, listen very carefully, is that he was capable of more than was allowable. And that is, at this point, he was fully able to begin performing his ministry. He was keeping up with doctors and scribes at this point in his life already and astonishing them with his understanding and his answers. Yet it wasn't the father's plan at this point for him to begin his public earthly ministry. And thus he'll now spend the next 17 and a half or 18 years of his life just living in submission to his parents and going through the everyday mundane things of life just like we do, waiting for God's plan to come into fruition. He was capable but it wasn't the right time. I think that's a frustration that many of us can feel from time to time in our lives. There's a sense and a call within our hearts and within our lives. There's something that God has for us. I know he put me on this planet for more. I know I'm capable of more, but God, you've got me locked into this place in life that I am right now. Listen, Jesus knows what it's like to go through that. He was capable, but it wasn't the Father's time. Thirdly, it tells us this, this passage, that a 12-year-old with the grace of God upon his life, can be on the same level as doctors and scribes. I mean, think about it. These guys that Jesus is conferring with in the temple courts, they've probably been to school for 12 years. 
And yet here's Jesus, who's only been alive for 12 years, and he's able to mix it up with them. Can you picture the scene? I mean, a bunch of gray hair and long beards and long locks and flowing robes. And here's a 12-year-old pre-teenager who's keeping up with them in terms of understanding and you know, knowledge and wisdom and being able to confer with them. What's the point of that? I use this passage often to challenge my kids. See, they're in school right now. I have a daughter who's 13 and then a son who's 11 and then another daughter who's 10. And then the other two don't count because you know, they, don't, they don't even know how to tie their shoes yet. You know, they don't, this illustration, they get the other illustrations. You know, the older ones get this one. But I'll say to them, listen, the curriculum that you're, you're using in your school right now is drawn up for you based on what other people do. They take thousands of other kids your age and they take the median intelligence level and what they can understand and then they give that to you. And they say, you have a choice. You can either succumb to what people tell you you should be or you can pray the grace of God upon your life and you can be what God made you to be. And this passage tells me that what God made us to be super exceeds what men tells us that we can be. And that's true in every portion of every one of our lives. You don't have to be what people tell you that you can be. You can be what God made you to be. And the difference is not education. It's not degrees. It's not opportunity. It's the grace of God upon your life. And every one of us has access to the grace of God upon our life. And thus, every one of us is capable of being so much more than what the world could ever say that we are. And then finally... In this passage, we learn that Jesus is also the Lord of submission. It tells us that he submitted himself to people that he created. He made Mary and Joseph, knit them together in the womb, and yet he made them himself subject or submissive to them because that was the Father's perfect will for him at that point of his life. There is an unbreakable bond between submission and authority. We are all called to a place of authority within our world and our sphere of influence. But the strength of that authority only stands under the strength of our submission. And if we're not in submission in the areas where God has placed us in submission, then we won't have authority in the places where God has called us to have authority. Have you ever noticed that rebellious people that refuse to submit, that they have very little authority in their lives? They're very loud oftentimes, but they carry very little weight behind what they say and what they do. And Jesus is an example to us here. He's the Lord of all. And yet for the sake of his ministry and what he came to do, for this time he's called to be in submission to his parents, and he did that. And it's an example to us that we should do exactly the same. The passage closes by telling us that Mary kept these things within her heart. That's the third time in this chapter that we read tonight that it says that Mary pondered these things in her heart. It tells us that Mary had a wait for more information file in her mind. She didn't fully understand yet everything that was taking place, but she held on to it because she knew that someday she would. It also tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was getting to know God by getting to know her son. And that's exactly what we're doing as we make our way through the Gospel of Luke. We're getting to know God as we're getting to know her son and getting to know who Jesus does. So the worship team can come, but as we close, if we string together the pearls of tonight's study, what we have is we have Jesus born in a barn and then laid in a feeding trough. Then we see Jesus raised in a semi-impoverished life or a low-income family. Then we see Jesus growing up on the wrong side of town and yet making the best of it. And then we see Jesus living in submission to ones that he created. And the thing that amazes me about all of that is that he did it all by his own choice. He could have been born into anything or any situation that he wanted to, but he chose to be born and raised in this type of a lifestyle having every option. And he did it so that he could identify with everyone, so that there's no one that could ever say, well, if you had been, then you would have too. He would say, I did. And he's also an example that with God, bad circumstances are an asset and not a hindrance because he did more with what he had than most of us do with the much that we possess. And most of all in this passage, what Jesus does 
is that he reveals the very personality of God. He chose what we detest. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 says, But he made himself of no reputation, and he took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. I like him. Father, we thank you so much for who you are and for what is revealed of you through Jesus, your son. And tonight as we sit here before the word of God and it reveals these things, Lord, we're humbled that such an awesome God would become so lowly that we might be brought into a right relationship in knowing him. We thank you, Lord, that you desire to be a God who is known and not a God who's mysterious. And we're asking you, Lord, now that by the power of your spirit, you would make these things even more real to us as we take them with us as we go. Lord, that you wouldn't be the Lord who's at church or the Lord who's in Bible study, but that you'd be the God who's with us as we drive in our cars, as we lay in our beds, as we do our work and business throughout the day. Oh, Lord, that we might know you more and more and that we might ponder these things in our hearts. So thank you, Father, for the preciousness of this text and this passage. May you go with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.